Well, with that, let's turn to God's Word. We are in 1 Samuel 19 this morning. You can find the passage printed for you in the bulletin, or you can follow along in your Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul. So he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at, at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul went or then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Sekhu. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Nioth and Ramah. And he went up there to Nioth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he, prophet, he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how it illuminates for us the problems of our hearts, the goodness of your heart, 
the way forward into righteousness. I pray that you would work in our hearts now to receive your word. Humble us, strengthen us, give us hearts of faith and love for you. I pray that you would do this work by your power, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, one of the most basic questions of a human being is, what is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? And how you answer that question will determine a lot about how you live. David uh, Bazon is a songwriter who used to be a Christian, and he's written really vivid songs about his experience of leaving Christianity. And one of his songs is called Hard to Be, and it's about answering the question, why is it hard to be a decent human being? The song begins by singing about the Garden of Eden, and he says, wait just a minute. You expect me to believe that all this misbehaving came from one enchanted tree? And so he indicates that he has graduated from the Bible's doctrine of sin and has a better idea of what is wrong with us. And in the bridge, he gives his explanation for what is wrong with humanity. Childbirth is painful. We toil to grow our food. Ignorance made us hungry. Information made us no good. Every burden misunderstood. So Bazon is basically saying that trauma, scarcity of resources, lack of education, and lies made us bad. And what's interesting about that list is that none of those things are our responsibility, is his responsibility. He indicates that the thing that is wrong with us is our environment. But the Bible, from its opening pages, says that our biggest problem is not our environment, but our own sin. What is wrong ultimately with you and me? Or excuse me, what is wrong ultimately with you and me? Certainly, trauma and lies and scarcity all affect what is wrong with the world. But those things are just the soil in which the seeds of our own sin have grown and become poisonous. What is wrong with us is our sinful nature. That is the first cause of what is wrong in the world. In the early, in the early 20th century, the Times of London asked several well-known authors, in your opinion, what is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton replied, dear sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton is giving the Christian answer that what is wrong with the world is our own sinful hearts. Now, we've been studying together the book of 1 Samuel, and in these chapters, we are reading about the fall of King Saul and how David is God's new chosen king of Israel and Saul's growing hatred of David. And in this passage, his son Jonathan confronts him about his sin. You see the repetition of the word sin in the passage, especially in verse 4. It says, And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. Saul's sin, his, his sinful intent, his sinful attitude, his insistence on murdering David, this is the emphasis of the passage, his sin. And so today... Uh, I want to for, help form for us a doctrine of sin, 
a doctrine of sin, and, by, and, and to do that by answering these three questions from the passage. First, what is sin? What is sin? Second, what effects does sin have on our lives? What effects does sin have on our lives? And, th- and three, how does God defeat sin? How does God defeat sin? Three fundamental questions for us on the nature of sin and the doctrine of sin. So the first is this, what is sin? What is sin? The main answer that the Bible gives is that sin is disobedience to God's law. The first sin by our father Adam was a violation of the clear command that God gave him in the Garden of Eden not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 1 John 3 says that sin is lawlessness. It is disregard for God's law. And in this passage, when Jonathan is repeating the word sin with his father, uh, he says in verse 5, Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? What he's doing there is referencing the law of Moses from Deuteronomy 19. In that chapter, God forbids the, the murder of the innocent. And it says there, Your eye shall not pity the murderer, but, shall, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, so that it may be well with you. And so Jonathan here is trying to obey this command. He is saying to his father, You are acting in disobedience to God. Do not make yourself guilty of sin. Sin is lawlessness. Now, let me ask you, when you think about what is wrong with your life, when you feel that things aren't working, what do you generally think is wrong? Take these two statements about a friend. Which causes you more concern? More concern? My friend disobeyed the law of God, or my friend suppressed their personality and was not true to themselves. Overwhelmingly, our culture thinks that the second statement is a way bigger problem. And that is because we often think of law-keeping as just external conformity, as if law-keeping is not authentic. You know, we might think of law-keeping as suppressing who we really are. It's just proper behavior. It's not really a genuine, heartfelt way of being. And so law-keeping, law in this view, means suppressing who you really are, such that it damages your person. But the thing we have to remember is that God made us. He knows how we are supposed to function, who we, we really are, and what actually works. There's a quote by Tim Keller along these lines where he says this, Because a fish absorbs oxygen from water, not air, it's free only if it's restricted to water. If a fish is freed from the river and put out on the grass to explore, its freedom to move and soon live is destroyed. Real freedom isn't restrictionless. It's finding the right freedoms. Lawlessness is a fake freedom that leads to death. Obedience leads to flourishing. Joy is actually baked into the restrictions and the commands 
of God because these things flow from God's good heart. And God doesn't want our rote, robot obedience. He wants our hearts. When He commands something, it doesn't just involve our external behavior. It involves all of who we are. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. God wants our minds, our hearts, our souls, our bodies, our behavior, all of them to be dedicated to Him in earnest. And obeying God is directly tied to our trust in God. When we trust that God is good, we obey what He says, even if we don't understand it. What obedience... Is God calling you to right now in your life that you do not understand? What obedience is God calling to you, calling you to right now in your life that you might not understand? Might you believe that God is calling you into life through the death of your old self so that your true self, which is the Christ in you self as he designed it, might live. So first, what is sin? We've just defined sin as disobedience to God's law. It is lawless living. And in the case of Saul, where he is violating, in in this case, he is clearly, Saul is clearly violating the command of God in Deuteronomy. So that is sin, lawlessness. The second question we want to answer about sin today, what effects does sin have on us? What effects does sin have on us? And I just want to list four effects of sin that we see in this passage. Four effects that we see in this passage. What, what effect does sin, our disobedience to God, have on our own selves? Four things. One, sin makes us ungrateful. Sin makes us ungrateful. Verse four says, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. David has been a huge help to Saul. He defeated Goliath. He led the Israelites in victory. He played music for Saul when Saul was being tormented by a harmful spirit. Saul can't see the good that God has brought into his life. When we follow in our own ways and don't do what God commands, it creates in us a deep sense of discontent that even the good things around us, we don't see. So first, sin makes us ungrateful. Second, sin makes us irrational. Sin makes us irrational. God's ways always have a wholeness to them. But there is something about sin that makes us crazy and disoriented. In the book of Romans, Paul has these famous lines where he describes sin this way. Romans 7, 15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And who does not relate to that? Not understanding their own actions, doing the very thing we hate. That is exactly what we see in, with Saul in this passage. Look how back and forth he is. In verse 6, it says, Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, 
As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And I think here Saul really means it. Jonathan has said, you should love David. And Saul says, you're right. So he kind of wakes up. You're right. He's been good to me. I promise I won't hurt him. But then two verses later, Saul is wanting to kill David with a spear. There's something raging inside of him. You know, this reminds me, and this is me, Matt, I added this in, uh, of the time I got my wisdom teeth out in college. And, uh, you know, some people, when they come out of surgery, they're just really tired and groggy, and that's the effect that the drugs have had on them. And others, very talkative and weird. <laughs> and I was the second. I mean, I was all over the place. I'd be talking about Jesus and the gospel and how good God is, and then I'd be saying something Jesus really wouldn't want me to say. I was just Two different people. And I remember walking into the house, and I was still really loopy, and my parents had these two little dogs that were kind of running around at my feet. Dolce and Toby, you know, this little puggle, so cute. This Jack Russell Terrier mix, also so cute. And they were just so happy to see me, and they're, they're bouncing around. And in my blurry fit of irrationality, I just wound my foot back and kicked one of the dogs. <laughs> Not like super hard, but I gave it a little kick, you know? And, and I started to wind my foot up for the second dog. And my mom shouted, don't kick the dog. And I said, you're right. I should not kick that dog. But I kicked the first one, and I feel so bad. I'm sorry, Dolce, and I'm sorry, Jesus. Sin is like laughing gas in painkillers. It makes us irrational. There is something irrational about Saul. He is erratic. One minute, he can see clearly, and he, is, he has goodwill toward David. The next, he wants to hurt him, even kill him. Maybe you have felt this tension in your own life, this inconsistency. People that you know you love, or know that people that you know love you, and yet they keep hurting you. And you think, why would they do that? And they say, I don't know. Or maybe it's the other way around. People that you love and you hurt. And you think, I don't know why I do that. I love that person. Why do I keep hurting them? Sin is irrational. It doesn't make sense. As Pascal said, the heart has its reasons for which reason does not know. Sin makes us irrational. So we're talking about the effects of sin. And so far we've seen sin makes us ungrateful. Second, irrational. And third, now, the third effect of sin, sin makes us alone. Sin causes us to harm others, and so it drives them away from us. Saul's behavior increasingly alienates himself from others, even members of his own family. And verse 9 says, Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. And, you know, by the way, one question you might have about this whole passage is, is about God sending a harmful spirit on Saul. And that came up a couple weeks ago, and a few people asked Pastor Nate about that. And uh, actually, Nate wrote an article about that. Uh, our church has kind of an online magazine that's been spinning up. And if you go to renewnorthwest.com, you could read about this harmful spirit business and, and learn more about that. So you should go check this out. But back to verse 9, this verse goes on to say, so it says, then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon, David, upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. 
Okay, so David has fled from Saul. And then next, we see this instance with Saul's daughter, Michal. Saul's daughter tells David, my father wants to kill you. You need to escape tonight. And they make this plan where David escapes through the window. And, you know, McCall takes this image and puts it in David's bed, you know, makes it look like David's really there sleeping. It's sort of the classic way to sneak out when your parents think you're sick. This is, this is that. And, he, and, and uh, she, she tells Saul's servants that David is sick. In verse 17, you see Saul seeking to understand how his daughter is betraying him. Saul said to McCall, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Saul's son has forced his son John Saul's sin has forced his son Jonathan and his daughter Michal to work against him. And it has driven David who loves him away from him. Saul's sin is alienating himself. When we disobey God, we act in irrational and even violent ways that make people have to be on guard against us. And the result of this is we are alone. What happens when people put their guards up? We are alone. And so this is a third effect on, of sin, that it makes us alone. And this leads us to the fourth effect of sin. After we're, we are alone, sin makes us ashamed. It makes us ashamed. You know, the final paragraph of the story is interesting. Because as David is fleeing from Saul, he goes to live with the prophet Samuel in Nioth. And apparently there is a community of prophets living there. And Saul tries to, ret- to retrieve David from this community three different times. But every time he tries, the messengers start prophesying. So Saul himself goes there. And look at verse 23. He went there to Nioth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Now this is a very interesting scene because it is a a close uh, repetition of an earlier passage in 1 Samuel 10 when Saul is actually made king. So when Saul is first anointed king, the Spirit of God rushes on him. In these exact same words, is Saul also among the prophets appear in chapter 10. So it's as if the first scene in chapter 10 marked the beginning of his kingship, and this one marks the end. And in this passage, he is naked. And nakedness in the Bible is often associated with shame. You know, Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they were naked and ashamed. And especially for Saul, he has been stripped of his royal robes. This is a scene of shame. Sin fills our lives with with shame. And this may be one of the most profound effects of sin. You know, and it makes sense that sin, or that shame is the result of sin. I read a a book recently by a Chinese theologian called Defending Shame. And the way he defines shame is this. It is an emotional pain that we experience when we have failed to meet some standard. It is an emotional pain that we experience when we have failed to meet some standard. 
Which is interesting because many people in our culture think that shame is always inappropriate. And that can be true. If you are operating with a standard that is not from God, you will feel shame that you really should not be suffering. So there is such a thing as bad, inappropriate shame. But if sin is missing the mark of obedience to God's law, then shame is the natural effect of that. And in fact, is meant to make you seek repair with God or with someone you have sinned against. It is there for a purpose, not to leave you in the dark, but to actually lead you into the light. The beginning of becoming a Christian is to realize that my biggest problem in my life is my own sin, is my disobedient heart to God's commands. It is because of sin that we are ungrateful, irrational, alone, and finally, ashamed. And you know, you might hear all that and think, humans, humans are pathetic. How sad. Why would God care about such pitiful creatures as us? And yet the whole Bible is about God's persistent interest in sinful humans like you and me. His persistent interest in redeeming us and not leaving us in the darkness and shame of our sin. And so that leads to our final question, how does God defeat sin? How does God defeat sin? The ending of this story is really interesting. You know, some of you might wonder, okay, Saul is stripped naked, he's stripped of his kingship, but then he's prophesying. So he's sinning and he is prophesying. I would think that godly people are prophets, so what's happening here? And I'll admit that this is strange. You know, one commentator explains that in chapter 15, it says that Saul had rejected the word of the Lord. And so there's a sense here that the Lord, in taking away his kingship, still makes him a mouthpiece of the very word he had rejected. But what struck me about this passage is in verse 20. It says that Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. This little, these little communities of, of prophets are, appear in various places in the Bible, and some have, thought, some have thought about them like schools for prophets, almost like a seminary. And so here, Samuel is sort of the, the chief prophet teaching the younger prophets to speak the Word of God. So even though Saul is being brought low, he is being humbled, He's also being brought into a community of prophets. You know, the company of prophets is, in a sense, what we are as a church. You know, we are all sinners. Uh, and just, or uh, we, uh, excuse me, the company of prophets is basically what we are as a church. Just like Samuel was the head of that company, company we have Jesus, the greater Samuel, the final and great prophet sent by the Lord as the head of this community. And his, his word is what we learn to hear and learn to speak with one another. And so one way that God defeats sin in our lives is that he humbles us. He draws us into a community where we hear God's word and even become mouthpieces of God's word. In other words, 
God retrains our hearts by His Word to learn to hate sin and to love what is good. That's one of the works that God is doing in this community. Another way, and the ultimate way, in which God defeats sin is that He sends Christ to bear the weight and the shame of our sin. Here, Saul is stripped naked and the kingship is removed from him. What happens in Jesus' suffering? He is stripped naked, crucified naked, mockingly named the king of the Jews. Jesus, your true king, bore your shame on the cross. He showed you that even the shame of your sin is not the last word. You can be redeemed. How does God defeat sin in our own lives? He puts it on his own son. So that when we believe in him, our sin dies with him, is cleansed by him, and we rise with him into newness of life as God's beloved. So that we are not ashamed in his presence, but know that we are loved and accepted, not because of what we do or what we bring, but because of who Christ is. And so what is wrong with humans? The Bible's answer is sin. It is the source of our ingratitude, our irrationality, our loneliness, and our shame. And the only one who can free us from these effects is Jesus. I like this quote by D.A. Carson, and I think of it often. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a savior. And so today, this week, this month, as you look out and perceive your problems, ask first, how is my own sin causing or making this problem worse? And second, how can I turn to Jesus in this? What would, I, what would happen if I sought his readily available grace and guidance? If I turned from my sin and I sought the Lord instead? When we know his grace, it fills us with gratitude. It brings a logic and harmony to our lives. It brings us into a community. And ultimately, no one can take away shame in our lives like him. His is the final voice that speaks to us love and peace. So let us turn to Jesus, the friend of sinners, in faith today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you teach us about what is happening in our hearts. We are prone to deception to self-justifying thoughts and actions. 
and words. We need to be humbled and know that we are sinners. And then we need to be comforted and know that there is a sinless one who is guiding us into righteousness. And your word speaks both these truths to us, and we thank you for them. We thank you for grace, because without it, we are helpless. We love you because you first loved us. Amen.